Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Paul Cohen is the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer of Visa, having come from a similar role at PayPal, where he spent two years setting up the company's first corporate communications function and overseeing communications about its separation from eBay. Before that, Paul had been with Visa for more than a decade, serving in his last position as Senior Vice President of Corporate Communications and Marketing for North America. Paul's time at Visa has been marked by, among other notable accomplishments, overseeing the company's record-setting initial public offering. Before Visa, he was in-house at AT&T and also spent time with Fleischman Hillard and the PBN company agencies. Paul has been named in Provoked Media's Influence 100 as one of the 100 most influential in-house communicators multiple times, most recently in 2020. In this interview, Paul speaks to Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer about everything from experiential communications to the importance of over-communicating to employees during COVID. Now, without further ado, here is Paul Cohen, CCO of Visa, in conversation with Paul Dyer, CEO of Lippy Taylor. Hello and welcome back. This is Paul Dyer with Lippy Taylor, and I'm joined today by Paul Cohen, Senior Vice President, Chief Communications Officer at Visa. Uh, Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Paul, I thought we would start out by talking about something that is um, relevant to our experiences here in 2020, but also to the broader sort of communications landscape, which is you've said that for those who in the communications industry do not have a seat at the table, you know, in quotation marks, um, that this really was the year where you should have gotten your seat at the table. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Well, if, if, if calendar year 2020 didn't change the role of comms or enhance the role of comms within your organization, you may be in, in the wrong organization or the wrong job. I mean, the whole world obviously turned upside down for every industry. But when you think about the role of communications and the need for stakeholder engagement, Every relationship was reset this year. The way you engage with employees and what they need to hear from you, the way you engage with clients and what they need to be successful and how to navigate uh, a, a COVID or post-COVID environment, issues of race and inclusion, um, the election in the US, there's so many issues and all of them required uh, either a reset or a relook at how a company engages with its stakeholders and communicates with the stakeholders. And so uh, communications was an obvious fit to take a bigger role in helping to shape uh, a company's activities during the year. Mm -hmm. One of the things you've also mentioned was, or cited was your, your role um, in sort of helping with the transition to working remotely for the employees of Visa. Um, so can you talk a bit about what was that like? Uh, any of the unforeseen challenges or um, you know, maybe even unforeseen wins? Yeah, absolutely. You, you think when something like this happens, uh, you know, something as dramatic as COVID and kind of resets the landscape, you have to look at your stakeholders and say, what do they need to see or hear from us um, to be successful, to be connected, um, 
you know, to feel part of the culture in the case of employees. And, you know, Visa has historically been a company where you know, people work from home, but it wasn't the norm. Uh, and all of a sudden we had to transition 20 plus thousand people out of the office and do so quickly. And so the key there was transparency, over communicating, making sure employees felt safe uh, and cared for. And so we did a number of things. You know, first we worked with the HR team to make sure that we had actual doctors and psychologists available. And we set up um, sessions, virtual sessions where employees could ask questions. You recall early on with COVID, there was just a lot of uncertainty about what it meant and how long we would be out of the office, um, how infectious it was, et cetera. And so bringing in doctors who could provide that insight and people, allow people to ask questions either in a public forum or if they preferred behind the scenes one-on-one, -on -one, uh, that was something that communications and the HR team worked on together to make happen. We did the same with psychologists um, to provide, you know, that kind of expert uh, resource, uh, mental health resource. And then beyond that, you know, the usual communications of making sure employees um, had the tools they needed to get their job done, making sure they could get online, uh, making sure they could use Microsoft Teams for meetings, et cetera. We also set up a, a virtual life at Visa, which was uh, you know, kind of a subset of the internet, uh, the, the Visa internet, which allowed employees to basically um, collaborate, engage in kind of things that are tangential to work. So maybe somebody has a recipe they wanted to share or they're homeschooling their kids and getting good results and they wanna talk about that. Um, or, you know, there's a meeting, uh, you know, a team meeting and everybody wants to get together for some kind of uh, virtual coffee uh, or virtual happy hour. All of that was done on this platform and it created really, really strong engagement. In fact, uh, productivity either stayed up, stayed the same or went up um, in the first few months uh, of um, the kind of work from home environment. Um, and it's based on what we've seen, it's still staying very, very high. Uh, and the feedback on communications from the executives was extraordinarily high. I think 97% of employees felt that the management team was communicating well, they were listening, and that it wasn't just pushing communications, but that um, there were tools and processes so that employees could then uh, engage in a dialogue with management. And so they felt like they were being heard. They felt like they were being understood and that we could address issues that arose fairly quickly. And, and overall, it was extraordinarily positive uh, and it continues to be that way. Well, that really is remarkable when you consider 20,000 employees and all of them, of course, wanting to feel heard um, for that to be true. Um, it, you know, it's a testament to the transition you were able to, to oversee. You've also mentioned, you know, despite obviously us being in this digital age, um, the importance of face-to-face -face interactions and engagement for um, some stakeholder groups, some more sensitive conversations. Um, obviously, we're constrained in that regard right now. But as we return to normal, I mean, what are your thoughts on the role of face-to-face -face engagement um, coming out of this? Well, you know, you've asked the question many times about whether I think digital marketing is a redundant phrase and whether everything is digital today. And I think largely that is the case, but there are still examples of where, you know, you need that face-to-face -face interaction. You need the personal connections in order to, to um, make any real progress. And so, you know, in our case, um, you know, Visa is uh, a payment 
a service that is accepted virtually everywhere. Uh, and in some cases, it's accepted on sites that people might find offensive, offensive or hateful, you know, some sites that are considered hate group sites. And, you know, we'll sometimes get letters from groups that say, hey, you should cut these organizations off. Why do you allow acceptance? And what we try to do normally is be a neutral arbiter. We say that if a service is legal uh, in the location where it is based and where the buyer is based, we don't want to get involved because we're virtual cash and we don't want to start picking winners, losers. Um, we believe, you know, it's up to the governments and law enforcement to decide what's legal and what's not. Um, but it's not always you know, clear cut. And so in the case, uh, for example, of hate sites, what we'll say to some of these groups who have issues and concerns is, hey, here's our point of view, come meet with us, let's talk about it and tell us, you know, which sites bother you and why. Uh, and if they make the case, we will actually go investigate and determine if there's any activity that either is inciting violence or is illegal, et cetera, and work with our financial institutions to get them off the visa network. Because we don't want any of that obviously illegal activity on our network. We don't want anything that's inciting violence. But that's a case where sitting down and having a conversation face-to-face -face versus doing it over email or worst case, social media, where you get you build understanding, you build awareness. Uh, and in many cases, what we've seen now is we've created partnerships where these groups will come to us now proactively and talk about things um, that are on their mind or ask to work with us on other projects that they have in the works. So it's been very, very productive from a, uh, from a business standpoint, from a reputation building standpoint. It's interesting because Visa is now 60 years old, 60 plus years old. Uh, and we were founded by a gentleman named Dee Hawk, a brilliant man who saw the value or the potential of digital currency before the personal computer was created or before the internet was widely adopted. And he saw it as a means of not only increasing uh, commerce, but also creating greater connectivity uh, across the world, greater inclusion. And so inclusion is, is in our DNA. Um, it's just not something historically Visa has talked a lot about, um, that, you know, as a network that connects the world, we really have a power to uh, individuals into the formal economy, to help small businesses grow, to help governments be more efficient, or as we say in our mission to thrive, is uh, core to how Visa was founded. Um, and now what we're doing is working with um, our colleagues in government, or government relations, as many other uh, companies call it, uh, our social impact team, the marketing team, many others to help better define what Visa is, our role in society and why anyone should care about us. How do we add value as a global network. And so um, one of the help to tell the story is through the Visa Economic Institute, which is really kind of an internal think tank to help um, promote things like digital trade uh, and, and make sure people understand the value of breaking down barriers globally, allowing for free trade, the free flow of ideas. Uh, in, in our case, you know, what we hope is that governments see the value in connecting to a global payments network versus creating their own network that's isolated uh, and maybe um, cut off from the rest of the world, that there's value in being connected, not just for Visa, but in the, the, the way of helping to include people and allowing you know, a merchant in a small country to sell to anywhere in the world if they want to, um, you know, allowing us to empower small businesses uh, to grow to thrive, 
um, and in doing so help entire communities. That's great. One of the interesting things about being here in the U.S. is we, we of course, think of ourselves as being technology leaders, and yet um, certain things that have been adopted for years worldwide, like chip and pin technology and credit cards, right, while Americans hung on to their mag stripes, um, have been slow to be picked up here. And now all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, we've been thrust into contactless payment as like the de facto for, for public health. And so what I'm curious is obviously that that's, that's been a goal for Visa to drive adoption of that. But when something like that takes such a hockey stick, right? You get such exponential adoption of a technology like that. I mean, what was it like? Are you hanging on for dear life or was it just, you know, you guys have been, been expecting this for a while and uh, we're finally caught up to you. Yeah. It's funny because you, you mentioned contactless cards, but uh, they are widely adopted everywhere in the world, except for the United States, where, as you say, we're just getting started. Um, and the you know, pandemic has really accelerated a number of trends in uh, digital payments, um, not just contactless cards, but also e-commerce, person-to-person payments. And so we've seen a huge growth in all of those areas. Um, contactless payments, as you know, because they're fast and safe. You don't have to actually have to touch a terminal. Um, and we've seen governments around the world begin to lift the limits um, for those types of payments. So that means, you know, before a government might have said, you know what, we don't want a contactless transaction to be greater than $40, $50. Well, when the pandemic hit, they said, well, we want more of those transactions because they're safer. So let's raise the limit and give consumers and merchants more ability to use those cards. Obviously, e-commerce, uh, merchants who um, wanted to navigate uh, a COVID environment needed ways to, to create business. And so more and more are turning to e-commerce. So we're seeing a growth in those types of transactions. And then we have a product called Visa Direct, which basically reverses the flow of the Visa network. So you think typically you go to a store and a consumer makes a purchase with their Visa product, and that's the end of the transaction. In the case of Visa Direct, the merchant can actually pay the consumer. So uh, companies like Uber use Visa Direct to pay their drivers in real time. So at the end of a shift, instead of waiting you know, two weeks for a paycheck to show up, uh, you can get paid right to your Visa card or your bank account via Visa Direct. Or if you're an insurance company making a payout, you can uh, send that pay out right to a Visa product or to a bank account, and we can make that happen. Um, the, that has also been accelerated by the pandemic. And the last one is, is P2P payments. You know, when you see uh, a payment made on um, Facebook, for example, that is facilitated by Visa. Uh, it's our network behind the scenes that's helping to make that happen. And as you can imagine, in an environment where people aren't always together, person-to-person -person payments have increased dramatically as well. So. Uh, you know, we've seen, as I said, I think probably three to five years minimum of um, acceleration in the trends in digital payments because of COVID. That's that's incredible, and and probably for the better in many ways. So one of the um, one of the big trends, you know, that we we like to to track and um, opine on is the changing role of advertising versus communications in our industry, and. This year, you know, saw the, the largest single decrease in media spend probably ever um, because of the, all of the things that we've been talking about. Um, 
but I'm curious, you know, within Visa, you've always been a large advertiser. Um, is the role of advertising changing? Is it something you see continuing in the same way that it is today with um, their relationship with communications or, or do you see that evolving over time? It's absolutely changing. I mean, you think about, you know, the old forms of advertising where you watch a, a television show and there's a break and a number of commercials come on. I mean, it's disruptive, right? And that's not, uh, uh in an environment where there's so many choices and, and um, media opportunities, consumers aren't going to put up with it. So you have to figure out ways to get your message out um, that are embedded in programs that are more natural, that are where consumers are more willing to um, accept that message. And so you see that change in advertising. Uh, and I think it's also put a greater emphasis on communications um, to help shape behavior by driving perceptions um, and communicating and reaching audiences where they are, not the traditional press release, et cetera, more engagement uh, on social, more events. Um, you know, we're fortunate at Visa to have the Olympics as a, be a sponsor of the Olympics, uh, of FIFA and the NFL. So we have the opportunity to use those platforms to engage our audiences in more experiential ways versus the traditional advertising. So I absolutely, you know, the, that trend is not going to reverse um, anytime uh, in our lifetime, I can't imagine any time. Um, and that experiential move is uh, is here to stay and something that you know we're investing more heavily in. I think you've got a lot of wistful listeners right now longing for the days where they get to go back to stadiums, to be honest, hearing you talk about the NFL and FIFA and the Olympics. Um, yeah, it's so not the same watching a virtual crowd cheering for your favorite team. It's really not. It's really not. And 2,000 people in a stadium designed for 100 is a very strange feeling. Um, so obviously, one of the things that helped drive the advertising industry to the prominence it attained was measurement. It's also, of course, one of the things that has been a bugaboo for the communications industry. So where do you stand on this um, discussion of how we measure the value of communications and doing what you just described, which is driving perceptions? It's a great question. You know, we we all still measure the traditional way, which is share a voice and message pull through. And, you know, I guess to some extent, we're stuck with that for now. Um, we increasingly try to measure reputation and get an understanding of does the work that we undertake as a company, does it shift perceptions and with it, drive behaviors. So, you know, we know as a company that um, one of the biggest challenges we face is Visa's misunderstood. Um, we are looked at as a credit card company. We, you know, we spent decades um, telling people we were a credit card company, uh, but we really are a payment technology company. We're a network that allows the, the free flow of money. And so, um, you know, we've seen through our research uh, that if we can help better define what Visa is as a payment technology company, then we reduce our desire to regulate amongst uh, policymakers and we increase preference for our products. And so that type of measurement and being able to quantify, you know, that by shifting a perception, you can drive a behavior is extremely powerful in making your case to management about why you need to undertake a certain program. 
um, and why you should be investing in one area of communications or marketing or government engagement versus another. And so we're increasingly investing in more reputation measurement type tools, um, whether it's, you know, the um, pulse polling that you would do every, you know, six months, eight months, year, et cetera, um, or is it more um, spot polls on certain issues just to determine whether you should engage or not? Uh, you know, we'll often use firms like a morning consult or something just to get a sense of, okay, something is going on in the environment. There's an issue taking place. Uh, is it um, something that could impact Visa or our customers? And you get real-time feedback and that kind of rich data and insights um, can often be very helpful in helping to bring um, kind of peace and understanding to uh, a management team that could get worked off because they're seeing in their social media feed one thing, but the data tells you something else. And so that data is very powerful. So measurement is absolutely critical. Um, and, and as I said, reputation is where we're trying to focus the most. Now, you know, I keep hearing about new tools and AI and more predictive um, type, um, I guess, tools. I, I haven't seen one yet uh, that I think would be applicable to us. If you know of any, I'd love to hear about them. But um, you know, to date, it seems something that people talk about more than actually implement or use. I'm sure there's a half a dozen vendors listening that are wishing I was re recommending them right now, but none, none are coming to mind that I'm going to put forward at this moment. But um, it's, it's a really interesting turn of phrase you use there, the power of data to give your management team peace. And I think that's, you know, that's really, it's an interesting way of looking at it. And it's, it's important to think like that. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier um, was DHawk. The, the, the original you know, founder of Visa, and that he's uh, he's still with us here today. And you have actually been to his home and met with him there. So can you just tell us what was that experience like? It's, he sounds like a pretty incredible guy. So he, he is a, a hugely impressive guy. Um, he lives up in the kind of Pacific Northwest um, on a beautiful um, inlet to Puget Sound. And uh he is a man who, uh, you know, the norms don't mean anything to him. He is constantly thinking what's possible, uh, what's next, uh, about connectivity globally. And, you know, that kind of curiosity uh, is what led him to um, create Visa. It's, you know, that kind of energy um, led him to build his own home when, you know, in, in Half Moon Bay, I think, area of California. Uh, it's, you know, he does art, he does woodworking, he does stoneworking. He is just this mind that doesn't stop thinking and processing. Uh, and he blends facts, data, insights with this kind of creativity that you don't see in many people. And so, you know, I had the chance to go meet with him with Al Kelly, our CEO. And we spent a number of hours at uh, DHawk's house and um, just understanding and hearing how he was able to create Visa and convince you know, a number of banks at the time to let him form this, uh, at the time, credit card company. Uh, it, it's an amazing example of diplomacy, of uh, creativity, of insights, and a little bullying um, that created what Visa is today. And so it, it, it helps ground me 
in Visa's purpose. It helps, it, it really helped me understand uh, more about his vision for the company. And when you think about, you know, how many companies are relevant 60 years after they were created, let alone leading our industry. And, you know, Visa is lucky to be one of those. And it's, we're only beginning to scratch the surface of what D-Hawk envisioned for us. And that is a, you know, that's really exciting to tap into, you know, his history and his legacy and to use that to continue to innovate and drive the digital payments industry forward. That is, I mean, what an inspirational um, experience to have had. So you used a couple of really powerful words there. You said data, you said insight, you said creativity. Um, these are, of course, all things that um, agencies in our industry aspire to offer to clients. Um, when you think about the partners you work with, what are the things, I'm curious, that are most valuable to you that they bring? And what are some of those things that they think are valuable, but you wish they would just stop doing? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, the most valuable thing uh, a vendor or an agency can bring is that outside-in perspective. You know, get us out of our own heads. You know, I talked about how data can help bring, you know, peace and understanding to a management team. So, you know, uh, it, it's almost the same. It's analogous, right? That a you get caught up in your internal meetings, uh, the way things are, have always been done. Or I'm, I'm just going to go down my to-do list today a good agency partner can bring that outside perspective, what's worked for other clients, what's the best practice, and call you, frankly, on your BS when um, you're too inside your head. So that's that's what I value most of all. Somebody who is understanding and willing to, is invested in your business, someone who understands the company's vision, mission, and values, um, but someone who's also going to push you within that, with, you know, within those, confines or within that structure. Um, so that's very, very important. Um, I think also in some cases it's training and development. Um, you know, we've moved to this environment where roles are not black and white as they used to be anymore, right? You know, there was the external comms person and there was the employee comms person and maybe the crisis person. I think Dave Sampson, at, he's now at Edelman, but was at Chevron, talks about a digital trading floor where, you know, you have a job description that's probably 70% of your job, but 30% of it's going to be something different. And it could be different every day. It could be based on a project. Well, we need help making sure that our teams have the skill set to flex and be agile. And um, that's where partners can help us with that kind of training to, so that um, we make sure that everybody on the team is digitally savvy. It's not a digital team that's going to take care of everything. We make sure everyone can think about communications from a multi-stakeholder perspective, not just employee or external. So I think those are the two big ones, that outside-in perspective, kind of the training alignment. Mm -hmm. So those are the good things. Now, what's the thing that you wish that agencies would stop doing? I was hoping you were going to forget that uh -huh. uh, part of the question. Um, what do I wish they would stop doing? Um, well, part of it, I guess, is the, the continued selling. Um, you know, it's not always that overt, but, you know, we see it. Um, my view is do great work and more, you know, business will follow. So, you know, that's one of it. Or um, I think sometimes it's thinking more about their portfolio are growing like a certain office or revenue center versus what's best for 
the company to grow. So, you know, we don't necessarily have an agency of record because we like having resources on the ground in the countries where we operate that know the markets um, and have expertise in those markets. Sometimes, you know, a global agency can have strong offices in some of those cities, but it's rare they're going to be strong at all of them. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we get an agency involved and they keep trying to push, you know, use a certain office or use a certain service they have versus stepping back and saying, okay, what's really right for this customer? And if we get it right, there'll be other ways to grow the business. All right. I think that's that's a great um, little tidbit there for, for people who are listening. Um, and overall, I mean, Paul, this has been extraordinary. So um, thank you very much for sharing your time and your insights here. Um, is there anything else that you think would be important to share with our listeners? Um, I know I, I just think uh, the most important thing now, I think, is just realizing that, you know, we're not going back to the way things used to be, whether it's our, in our lives or in communications. And so it's incumbent on all of us to start to rethink how we do communications. So, for example, employee communications. Um, we used to have a workforce that was almost exclusively on site in one of our offices. We are likely to move to an environment where most people never come back to the office full time. So how do you engage them? How do you build that community for the long term? You know, I talked about what we did, you know, in the first six months or so of the pandemic, but you have to sustain that. So how do you create that dialogue? What tools are available to build culture in that new world? And the same goes for other stakeholders. Um, so it, it, it's, I would say the key is maintaining curiosity, um, continuing to push yourself and your organizations uh, to look at new ways of doing things and recognizing that um, the old way of doing things are probably not going to be the best way of doing things in 2021. Well, it's a lot to look forward to. So thank you again, Paul. We appreciate um, your time and your insights here. And I'm sure our readers and listeners will as well. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. All right. Here's always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Paul Cohen. Number one, when communicating with employees around major shifts like the overnight switch to working from home, transparency and over-communication is key. Over-communicate. Make sure employees feel cared for and safe. And come at it from a variety of angles. Visa not only connected employees virtually with doctors who could explain health issues, but also with psychologists who could provide expert insight into coping with the changes. The company also connected employees with each other through an intranet that facilitated activities from swapping recipes to exchanging homeschooling tips. Number two, traditional advertising that disrupts consumer experiences is being replaced by experiential communications. We all know consumers will not tolerate long commercial breaks in the middle of television programs anymore. So what marketers do instead is embed the message in ways that feel more natural. Communications can help here with more engagement on social media and through events. Visa, for instance, is a sponsor of the Olympics, FIFA, and the NFL. The expanded importance of experiential communications is here to stay, while traditional advertising's days are very much numbered. Number three, measurement is critical when interacting with business leaders. 
But so far, AI isn't making much impact. At Visa, a long-standing challenge has been to transition the brand's image from that of a credit company to that of a payment technology company. Reputation is also a huge focus here. In both areas, measurement of communications impact is vital. Visa is increasingly investing in more reputation measurement type tools, including pulse polling, done periodically as well as spot polls on current issues to guide decisions about whether to engage or not. AI and predictive tools, however, haven't proven themselves at this brand despite their hype. Anyway, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. To learn more about Lippy Taylor, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.